The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and verses 25, 26, and 27. Verses 25, 26, and 27 in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now we're in the midst of our consideration of that great and most important statement which the apostle makes there concerning the duty of husbands towards their wives. And we see that the controlling thought is that the relationship uh, between the husband and the wife is to be similar to that between the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. The way, in other words, in which a Christian husband is to view his position as a husband is that he is to put into practice that which is seen so clearly in the case of our Lord himself. He is to love his wife with the same type, the same kind of love. And this is to manifest itself in practice. This isn't something theoretical. The apostle reminds us of what the Lord has actually done for the church and is doing, and what his great and glorious purpose for the church is. And this is to be the pattern and the example by which the conduct and behavior of the Christian husband are to be governed and directed. Now we are looking at this. Therefore, obviously, the first thing we have to do is to consider what our Lord has done. Because it is only as we understand that that we shall know what we have to do. We therefore have here, as I'm pointing out, at one and the same time, perhaps the highest peak in all the apostles' teaching with respect to the church. And at the same time, we have this most practical instruction and teaching uh, with respect to the duties of husbands uh, towards uh, their wives. Now, we are looking at the moment, therefore, at uh, our Lord in his relationship to the church. We have seen his concern about her, his attitude with respect to her. And we are emphasizing at the moment how this attitude and concern have expressed themselves in action, in practice. This isn't theory. Let's forget all about the poets, who can be very wonderful in what they write, but who are not always so wonderful in the way in which they live. Let's get rid of all such notions and realize that love is very practical. And it shows itself in practice in these ways. First of all, what the Lord has done for the church. He gave himself for it. And we've considered that. Then we began to consider last Sunday morning what he is still doing for the church. He has done that first thing once and forever. He gave himself for it. But he doesn't leave it at that. He goes on doing something to the church and for the church. And that is what we are considering at this present moment. Now, we began last week by looking at this word, sanctify. Gave himself for it, we read, that 
he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The word sanctify, we said, means here setting apart. It's used with different meanings in the scriptures, but clearly this is its meaning here. The Lord has set the church apart for himself. We are his peculiar people, a people for his own, a peculiar and special possession. The bride, as a bridegroom, a man chooses out one from among all others, so he has chosen the church. And she is the special object of his concern. And so he has set her aside and apart in order that he may do certain things for her. Well, now then, we can proceed from that point. Having set the church thus on one side, what happens? The next word, therefore, that we come to is this word, cleanse. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, it is here, in this word, cleanse, that the whole notion and idea of purifying what we normally call sanctification really comes in. Now, the whole statement, of course, is a statement concerning sanctification. We were pointing that out last week, that our Lord never stops at just delivering us from guilt. He does that in order that. He gave himself for it that, with this purpose, with this object. He goes on. He's got a grand objective. So here is a, a most extraordinary statement of the New Testament teaching concerning sanctification. The first thing is this separation. Then, having done that, he proceeds with this further idea of cleansing. Now, what exactly does he mean by this? And here we must be careful to note the full content of this word cleanse. There are some who would confine it solely to our being washed from the guilt of our sin. But that clearly and patently is not enough. It includes that. But we've already had that notion rarely in the idea that he gave himself for it and separated. There is implicit the notion of our being delivered from the guilt of sin. But uh, I'm not uh, disposed to quarrel with those who want to include that under this word cleanse. He does cleanse us from the guilt of our sin. But this word goes beyond that. And I think that I can prove this, that it isn't merely a matter of opinion. The very fact that he adds that the cleansing is done by the washing of water by the word is a proof of the fact that it is a continuous and a continuing process. The washing from the guilt of sin is once and forever. That's a single action. But here is a continuing action. That he might cleanse her by the washing or with the washing of water by the word. That shows that it is not merely a matter of getting rid of the guilt. But then the, the, the 27th verse, I think, establishes it still more positively that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that in order that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, there is his ultimate objective, that the church is not only delivered from the guilt of sin, but that she should be delivered entirely and completely from sin in every shape and form and aspect. 
Surely Top Lady has got this idea quite perfectly when he puts it like this. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Now, the New Testament never stops at the guilt. It always goes on to this further notion of our being cleansed from the power of sin also. Indeed, I want to add even to that. The cleansing is from the guilt of sin, it is from the power of sin, and it is also from the pollution of sin. And we must never forget that third aspect. It is very frequently forgotten. You will find in various societies with their basis of faith, they often mention the power of sin but leave out the pollution of sin. And yet in many ways the most terrible thing about the fall is that it has polluted our nature. And sin is powerful within us very largely because of our polluted nature. The thing the apostle describes so graphically in the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans. In me, he says, that is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Now that's pollution. That's not power. It leads to power. But it is because our natures are polluted, they're tarnished, they're soiled, made unclean by sin, that sin is so powerful within us. And therefore we need to be cleansed, not only from the guilt and not only from the power, but in particular from this terrible pollution of sin, the stain of it all, the perversion. Sin has got into the very warp and woof of human nature. Our very natures are vile and twisted and perverted. In other words, we all have to realize that about ourselves by nature. It is not that we are neutral and that we are tempted from the outside. No, no. We are born in sin. We are shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. That's the teaching of the scripture. The apostle has already put it for us, of course, at the beginning of the second chapter, where he says we were dead in trespasses and sins, and so on. And these lusts of the flesh, now that's the same thing. This law within my members. It's not only a power, it's an infection. It is indeed, as I say, a pollution. It's like a, a source of water supply polluted. There's a poison in it, in the water. And that's the thing from which we have to be cleansed. Before we can be presented by the Lord to himself as a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle, nor any such thing, but that we should be before him, in holiness, be quite holy, and without blemish. Well now, the question for us therefore is, how is this done? And here the apostle introduces a phrase. He says, it is done with the washing of water by the word. Now here is an important and a very difficult phrase. A phrase which has often been misunderstood and misinterpreted. There are many who see here the teaching of what they call baptismal regeneration. That uh, we are delivered and cleansed entirely from sin by baptism. It was an error which crept into the early church in the first centuries. It is an error which in many ways is perpetuated by the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church even up until this present time. Now I'm not going to enter into all that this morning because it seems to me that it's so utterly artificial and is imposing a meaning upon the words which 
taken naturally and at their face value they never would have suggested. They were introduced, it was introduced, of course, in the interests of the power of the church and all who still teach anything like that, whatever form of Catholicism they may claim to have are still guilty of the same thing. So the point here is not, I say, some magical action which takes place in baptism. Neither is it the particular formula which is used. Some have emphasized that saying, the washing with water by the word. It's the word spoken by the man who's baptizing the infant. That's the thing that does it. Well, again, that is a sort of sacerdotalism. That's nothing again but an attempt to bolster the authority of the priesthood. No, it's got no magical connotation. Neither is it just to indicate the power of the priesthood. Well, what does it teach? Well, it does seem to me that there is obviously a reference here to baptism, to the fact and the act of baptism. That, of course, is not surprising because here we are dealing with people who were once pagans. They heard the gospel and they believed it. And then before they were admitted into the church, they had to be baptized. And having been baptized, they were received into the membership of the Christian church. And therefore it did stand in their minds, obviously, as something which was meant to represent this cleansing, this deliverance from one realm into another realm. And so you find the Apostle Paul putting it like this in writing to the church at Corinth, in the first epistle, chapter 6 and verse 9, Know ye not, he says, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now there's the whole notion, this washing, you see. He says, you were like that, you're no longer like that, you're no saints in the church. Well, well you've been washed. And the, one of the purposes of baptism is to represent that. The Apostle Peter has very much the same idea as he puts it in the first epistle in the third chapter. In verse 20 and following, he says, uh, he's talking about the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah uh, while the ark was preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, uh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right, at the right hand of God. Well, now then, there you see uh, clearly is the idea with which we are dealing in this chapter, that, this uh, statement that is before us. Baptism is a figure and is a representation in symbolic manner of what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us in this process of sanctification. The object of baptism, therefore, is to represent that and to seal that to us and to our minds and to our hearts. It does no more. Baptism in and of itself does nothing. Merely to be baptized doesn't change us as such. 
That is the false uh, idea of uh, sacraments. You are familiar with the technical term. The Roman Catholics and all Catholics teach that sacraments act and are effective ex opere operato. In other words, that in and of themselves the thing is done. In the very act of baptism, a child is regenerated or an adult is regenerated. Now, there's no teaching such as that in the scripture. But it is, as Peter says, a figure, a like figure whereunto. It's a dramatic representation. It, it's the same, of course, as the Lord's Supper. We don't believe that the bread is turned into the very body of Christ. Of course not. It's a representation. He says, look at this bread. Now, when you come to eat that, let that remind you of, let that represent and figure to you my broken body. And likewise uh, with the wine. The cup, as he puts it, the cup holding the wine. This cup is the New Testament. You see, that's your answer to the Roman Catholics, finally, who say that the wine is turned into the blood. They say, you must take these things literally. Well, if you take them literally, what our Lord said was, this cup, he didn't say this wine, he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, proving that the whole thing is simply representative and symbolical. And so then it is with baptism. What does baptism represent? Well, clearly it represents this. Our being washed, from the guilt of sin. There we were sinners and in sin and the wrath of God. We've been delivered by this belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, by what he has done. Very well. Baptism reminds us of that. Secondly, it reminds us of the, of the fact that uh, we are being cleansed from the power and the pollution of sin. It's a sort of washing. A symbolical representation of a process of cleansing. It introduces that. And thirdly, it does uh, stand for the whole notion of our being baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. You remember how Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, 1st epistle, chapter 10, says that the Israelites were baptized into Moses by the cloud, as it were, which was there over them. They were not immersed into a cloud, the cloud was over them. And in the same way, baptism represents that we are thus baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. The whole notion that Paul has got in his mind here is just that, our union with Christ. We are members, he says, of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. How does that happen? Well, we are baptized by one Spirit into Christ. And baptism stands for that also. So here it is. It is an external symbolic representation of these three things which the Apostle is emphasizing so prominently in this particular section. Well then, obviously his main object here is to show us how Christ is cleansing the church, preparing her for himself, and that he does so through the Holy Spirit. It is not accidental, of course, that when our Lord was standing there in the Jordan at his own baptism, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in the form and the shape of a dove. So always in baptism, we should be thinking of that aspect of the coming of the Holy Spirit into us and upon us in order that he may baptize us into Christ and proceed with this work and process of sanctification. Very well then, there we've looked at that aspect of the matter. It's a very difficult phrase. It has always caused a good deal of discussion. 
washing of water. But the real important word here is, of course, the word itself. That he might cleanse it by the word, through the washing of the water, if you like. But here is the vital thing. This expression, by the word, should be joined to the word cleanse. There is a representation of it in baptism, but it's no more than a representation. The real work of sanctification is done by the word, through the word. And the Holy Spirit does this work in us by means of this word. Now, here is something which is, I suppose, in many ways, the most important thing for Christian people to grasp and to understand. The instrument which is used by the Holy Spirit in our cleansing is the Word. Now, here is New Testament teaching on holiness and sanctification. It is something which is done in us by the Holy Spirit using the Word. And uh, let us emphasize this, that this is a process. It is a progressive cleansing until we shall be free from every spot or wrinkle or any such thing, free from every blemish, but shall be entirely holy. Now, there are people who teach that what seems to happen to the Christian is this, that he is a saved man, but he remains in his sin. As long as he abides in Christ, he'll be kept from sinning, but there's no change in the pollution of sin that is only dealt with when he comes to die. But that clearly, according to this teaching, is quite wrong. It is a process of cleansing. It goes on. As a man goes on in the Christian life, there should be less and less of the pollution of sin in him. He should be coming progressively sanctified as this process goes on. He's not merely enabled to resist the power of sin. He is being cleansed from the pollution of sin. He is progressively being brought into this state in which he will be finally perfect. And this is done, I say, by means of the word. By the word. Now, the great principle which we lay hold on is this, therefore. That the operations of the Holy Spirit in us are generally in and through the word. That is why it's a very dangerous thing to separate the Holy Spirit from the word. Now, many have done this, and there have been grievous successes. Indeed, the whole departure of the people who are called Quakers, more or less from the Christian faith, is due to this very thing. They put such emphasis upon the inner light that they ignored the word. They say the word doesn't matter. It's this inner light that matters. And they've gone to the point in which they're more or less detached from New Testament doctrine. And the Lord Jesus Christ is scarcely necessary to their system. And there are others, as you know, who have emphasized the Holy Spirit to such an extent that they have separated it from the Word. They don't want to be taught. They don't want instruction. They live in the realm of feelings and moods and experiences and go off into ecstasies. And often it leads not only to shipwreck of their faith, but to gross immorality and excesses and failures. The Word and the Spirit generally go together. The word has been given by the Spirit, and he uses his own word. This is the instrument that he uses. I am not denying that the Spirit cannot speak to us directly, but I am saying that that is exceptional. 
And I am going further, I say this. That anything that we think is the work of the Spirit within us must always be tested by the Word. The Holy Spirit will never do anything contradictory to his own Word. So we are exhorted, prove the Spirit's. Try the spirits, test the spirits, examine the spirits. Every spirit is not of God. You need a proof and a test of the spirits. What is it? It's the word. So this work is done, I say, by the spirit, represented by the act of baptism, the spirit coming upon us. And uh, the work is done by the word. Now let me establish this point. It's such a vitally important one. To show you how nearly all the work that the Spirit does in a believer to a Christian is done by means of the Word. Take our regeneration even. Listen to James putting it like this. Wherefore, he says, lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted Word which is able to save your souls, the Word. Or take James putting it like this. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Peter teaches the same thing. Being born again, he says, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, you see, Regeneration, of course, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, but you see, he does it by the word, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. It is the word as used by the Spirit that gives us this new life. Or listen to Paul putting it in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when he received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, listen, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. This work word is effectually working in us that believe. It brought you into the life, it is continuing to work effectually in you. Work out your own salvation through fear and trembling. It is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do. How does he do it? Through the word. Let me give you other examples then of this self-same thing. Because our Lord himself has taught this very plainly and very clearly. You will find an account in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel that our Lord was preaching one afternoon and we are told that uh, when they heard these things, They believed on him. Then I read this in verse 31. Then said Jesus unto the Jews, which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You notice, they have to continue in his word, and if they do so, the truth shall make them free. Or listen to him again in John 15, verse 3. Now, he says, are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you? It is the word that cleanses. 
And then you notice two examples of it in that 17th chapter of John's Gospel, which we read at the beginning. The first is in verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You see, he's leaving his disciples in the world, and the enemy is attacking. He says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from this evil one. And he says, oh, I pray thee, sanctify them, cleanse them, deliver them from the world and the flesh and the devil and all that sin has done. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And then you notice that other tremendous statement where he says, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. He is talking now about setting himself aside for the death on the cross. Why is he going to do it? That they also might be sanctified through the truth. Very well. Here is the great principle that we find taught everywhere in the New Testament. Christ is cleansing the church through the work of the Holy Spirit whom he has sent and who uses this word in order to do so. But that leaves us then with this vital question. What is this word which the Holy Spirit uses? We are to be sanctified by means of this word. What is the word of sanctification? What is the teaching which leads to our progressive sanctification and deliverance from the power and the pollution of sin? Now, here again is a very vital matter in this whole question of the doctrine of sanctification. Because there is a very real danger of our narrowing down this word concerning sanctification and confining it only to some special teaching or formula about sanctification. Now, we are all familiar with such teaching. There are those who say that sanctification, and this is their own term, is quite simple. Quite simple, they say. They've got a special message about sanctification and holiness. This is quite simple. It really just comes to this. Trust and obey. Let go, let God. It's quite simple, they say. That's the, that's the teaching of the scripture concerning sanctification. So you will find that they present their teaching quite frequently, not to say generally, in terms of some Old Testament anecdotes about which they let their imagination to run riot, and thus they, they're only concerned to present this formula. There's a simple formula, they say, about sanctification. It's quite simple. You, you, you just cease to struggle and to fight. You, you just trust and obey. You believe and you've got it and you go on. And they say there's no more. Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. Through the washing of water by the word. But is the word only that? Is that the word that leads to our sanctification? Is sanctification represented anywhere in the scriptures by just some formula which you extract and then more or less ignore all the New Testament epistles and their teaching? And to simply find illustrations of this simple process in various anecdotes in the Old Testament. Well, surely that is to deny this whole teaching. What is this word that teaches us sanctification and which sanctifies us? And the answer is, of course, it is the whole Bible. The whole of the truth that you find in the Bible. What is this word by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us? 
Well, it's any one of these New Testament epistles. Why did the Apostle Paul ever write this letter to the Ephesians? There's only one answer. He wrote it in order that their sanctification might be promoted. They believed the truth as he reminds them in chapter 1. Yes, but he wants them to grow in grace. He wants them to develop. He wants them to be rid of sin in its guilt, its power, and its pollution. He wants them to see that this is the objective, that they might be perfect and holy and entirely blameless and without spot. And he writes, in order that they might be brought to that, they must go through this process. The whole of this epistle is about sanctification. This is the word. It isn't some little formula, which is quite simple. And you just apply your formula and then you've got it. Not at all. You have to go into all that you have in this epistle. In other words, the word by which we are sanctified is the whole of the biblical teaching. It is in particular all the great doctrines which are taught everywhere in the Bible. And it is only as we realize this that we see how that other idea which would narrow down and confine sanctification and holiness teaching to just one little formula is rarely in the last analysis a denial of most of the Bible. What is this word, I ask, by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us? And you answer by saying that first and foremost, it is the word about God. When you're teaching sanctification, you don't start with men. But that's how it's commonly done, isn't it? They say, is there any failure in your life? Are you unhappy? Are you being got down by something? Are you ill at ease? Are you living a defeated life? They start with that. You say, they say, it's all right now. You can be delivered from that. And what you do, well, all you need to do is just to surrender that problem. Just give it to the Lord and he'll deliver you from it. He'll take it out of you. And then all you do is to abide in him and he'll keep you right. Isn't that so much of sanctification and holiness teaching? Starts with men and his problem. How can I be made happier? The Christian secret of a happy life. But that isn't how the Bible does it. How does the Bible do it? It does it like this. You start by looking into the face of God. You don't start with men, you start with God. There is no profounder way of teaching sanctification and holiness than simply to teach the doctrine concerning the being, the nature, and the character of God. You don't start with yourself, you start with God. You don't start with you a problem, you start with the Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Is there anything that promotes sanctification and holiness as much as that? Well, the Bible is full of this. Do you remember that great statement which we are given about the prophet Isaiah? You remember the call of Isaiah, don't you? Let me read it to you in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the way the Bible teaches holiness and sanctification. Do you know why we are as we are, my friends? Do you know why there is so much failure in our lives and so much sin? The whole of the answer is there. We just don't know God. Holy Father, said our Lord, the world doth not know thee. But I have known thee. Oh, said he, if they had but known thee, they wouldn't live like this. They don't know you. They talk about God and they argue, but they don't know thee. Holy Father, the world hath not known thee. And the trouble with us who are Christians is that we don't know God. Forget about your formulae. Forget about yourselves. And the thing that's worrying you, the one thing that you think gets you down, that isn't your trouble. Your nature is polluted. And if you get rid of that, you'll have something else to fight. The trouble is, I say, we don't know God. It is the men who have sought God in the face of God who have been most holy. What you need primarily is not some experience, it is this knowledge of God, the attributes of God, his glory, his ineffability, his almightiness, his eternity, his omniscience, his omnipresence. What if you and I but had the realization that wherever we are and whatever we do, that God is looking at us, it would transform our lives. So the Bible, this word about which our Lord is speaking, is the word about God, the Holy Father. That's New Testament teaching concerning holiness. You start with that first central, all-controlling doctrine. You see it not only in Isaiah's Ezekiel, shows us the same thing. He had this vision of God and felt the same uncleanliness and fell down. Job had been talking a lot about God and criticizing, but now he says, my eyes have seen thee, and he's humbled and puts his hand upon his mouth. Have you heard much teaching about the being and the character of God? In your holiness and sanctification meetings? How often have you heard sermons about the nature and the being and the attributes of God? No, no, all that's left out. You see, all that's taken for granted. We start with ourselves and our problem. And I want to know how I can get rid of this or have that. You see, it's all wrong. The approach is wrong. The word, thy word, and it's a word about God to start with. A revelation of the being and the character of God. Through the washing of water by the word. Yes, and the same word. Reveals unto us our state in sin. It tells us what man was like originally. There's no better way of preaching sanctification than preaching about Adam as he was before the fall. That is what man was meant to be. How often have you heard sermons about Adam in such meetings concerning sanctification and holiness? And then the fall. The fall of men and its terrible and terrifying consequences. Sanctification. Go and read the epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. 
Our being in Adam and being involved in his sin, there's the root of the problem. And we must understand that. The Word teaches us about all that. That's New Testament teaching about sanctification. This high doctrine in these epistles, not some Old Testament characters which we can use as illustrations for our theory. No, no. Exposition of this truth. That's why we're taking our time over this. God's hatred of sin. The punishment that God threatens upon all sin. What next? The Ten Commandments. Yes, they establish sin, they pinpoint, they focus sin, they bring sin home to us, so it's a part of this teaching. We don't stop at that, but we show that they come in in order to convince us, schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, a revelation of God's holiness. That's why the fathers used to paint the Ten Commandments on the walls of their churches. It was quite right. It's not a way of salvation, but it is a way of showing us the need of it and the continuing need of being cleansed. And then, God's gracious purpose of redemption. The covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit meeting together to plan man's deliverance. Paul has already told us about it at the beginning of this epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you start preaching sanctification. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's it. And then all about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All that he has done and all that he's endured. You know there's no better way of preaching sanctification than preaching the cross. Why, well, if I look at it and survey it, I come to this conclusion. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Ah, but they say this is now holiness. You're finished with salvation. You're finished with forgiveness of sins. You don't preach the cross in a holiness convention. Of course not. This is now the formula for sanctification. You don't preach the cross here. Don't preach the cross here. Is there anything so calculated to promote holiness and sanctification as the cross? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's because we've never seen the cross that we are what we are. That's the cause of our failure and our weakness. We've never realized his love to us. If only we really saw the meaning of the cross. If we but had the experience of Count Zinzendorf, looking at that picture of the cross, he cried out saying, Thou hast done this for me, what can I do for thee? Looking at that, he says, I have one passion, it is Christ and he alone. This is the word, the whole of the great doctrine, the Holy Spirit, his person, his work, his power. What then? His baptizing us into Christ, our union with Christ. This doctrine of the church, this is the thing, this is the word that promotes sanctification. And on you go with all these doctrines, the doctrine of the second coming. It's here, you see, in verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that should be holy and without blemish. When did you last hear a sermon on the second coming of Christ in a holiness convention? But my dear sir, they say that's wrong. You go to a second advent meeting for that, you don't go to a holiness meeting for the second coming doctrine. And you see, that is why we have departed from the scripture. We've got our special departments. Holiness, all right. You don't need the cross. You don't need the second advent. You just need this one thing, quite simple. 
No, no. It is only as I realize his purpose for me in that glorious day which is coming when he will present the church to himself as a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any... It is that that urges me to seek sanctification. Listen to John saying the same thing. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall see him as he is and shall be like him. And listen... And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. The doctrine of the second coming leads to sanctification, to purification. The word you see about which the apostle is speaking here is the entire word of the scripture. Every doctrine, the whole of redemption from beginning to end, the entire Bible, through the washing with water by the word. And then having presented this glorious doctrine to us, the word of exhortation, because all this is true, what sort of people should ye be? Because this is true as Paul has been putting it, you mustn't be as you once were, separate yourselves, go on with your sanctification, as yourselves from all pollution of the flesh and of the spirit perfecting holiness in the sight of God. Cleanse and wash your hands, you double-minded. These are the exhortations, but they're all in the light of the word, the great doctrine. So, you see, we find here that the process of sanctification, which is carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit whom he has sent, is done by and in And through the word, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is true. And it doesn't matter at what point you look at it. It'll humble you and it'll lead to your sanctification. But above all, I plead, start with God. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Have we got any time to waste or to spare? What we need, you know, is not to get rid of that little problem in our lives. It is to be ready for that. It is as we look into the face of God, we see the need of sanctification and are shown the way whereby our sanctification can be achieved. And it is the function of the Spirit to do this. He leads us to the Word. He opens the Word to us. He implants it in our minds and hearts. He reveals the Lord to us. And so our sanctification, our cleansing, proceeds from day to day and week to week and year to year. And as we shall see God willing next time, he will go on with it until the work is completed. And we shall be holy and without any blemish in his holy presence. This is the work which the Lord is continuing to do in his people. Now shall we join in singing our last hymn, which is hymn number 229. 229. Lamp of our feet whereby we trace 
our path when wont to stray. 229. Keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit Abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see him as he is and be like him. Amen.